It's nice to be here, even though we can't be together. This marks week number six, Sunday number six, that we have been apart from each other, and it feels long, doesn't it? It feels difficult, and like Pastor Mel said, we are going to do our best to make the wisest choices possible to come back together when the Lord says so, and we think it's the best time to do so. But please pray for us in that, in that way, and please be patient as we continue on in this uh, different uh, pandemic situation that we're in right now, but we thank you for joining us today. We know it will be a blessing as we gather around the Word of God this morning. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've started a series called The Classics, Seeing the Old Through the New, and what we've been doing is taking many of the old classic Old Testament stories and characters and teaching the story, but at the same time showing you what it looks like when we look at it through the lens of the New Testament, because we have the entire story that we can look at the Old Testament through, and we can see the finished story. We can see some of the parallels come out. And that's what we want to do today, is we want to look at the Old Testament story of Moses. And Moses is a very broad and vast story, as I, as I know you know. But we're going to start maybe a mini-series through the life of Moses. This week, Pastor Mel next week is going to speak on the life of Moses. And there's a lot of things to draw from the life of Moses. But I sort of, I sort of want to start at the beginning of Moses' life because I think that's really important for what we want to talk about today. The lesson title today is going to be called Salvation-Fueled Devotion. Salvation-Fueled Devotion. And you see the text on the screen, Exodus chapters 1 to 12. And yes, we are going to look at portions of 12 chapters of Exodus today. And Lord willing, we will be able to get through it all today. But before we get to the text... Did you ever lose sight of the value of someone important? Did you ever lose sight of the value of someone important? Uh, any parents out there? My illustration today is children. Children are great. I love children. I have a big family, six children. God has blessed us. And I love kids. I've always loved kids. I've been working with kids ever since I was in college. And I just love children. But if I'm honest, sometimes I lose the value of my children. And... Uh, I don't know what it is, but when I come home from a day at the office or from working and my mind has been taxed and I'm tired and I want to see my children, I really do, I look forward to that, but after a few of their requests, I'm a little burnt out. Uh, my children will come up, come up to me and go, Daddy, 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 I want juice. Daddy, can I have juice right now? Daddy, please. Uh, Daddy, Daddy, look at my drawing. Look at the drawing that I made while you were gone. Uh, Daddy, Daddy, watch me do this twirl. Watch me do this flip. Can you watch Daddy right now? Daddy, Daddy, I made a big poo. Daddy, come look. Come look how big my poo is. <laughs> Can I say poo from the pulpit? Daddy, Daddy, what's that red bump on your nose? Daddy, Daddy, why is Marcus eating from the floor? And I just have to go, kids, kids, enough. Give Daddy a moment. Daddy needs to breathe. Daddy needs to chillax a little bit. Give Daddy a moment. And I don't know what it is. If I'm honest, it's sad, but I'm, I'm honest with you. Sometimes I just, I want to separate myself from my children. I want to go in my bedroom turn them off, get my bearings, get my equilibrium back, and I lose value of the sight of my children. And all it has to do for, for that to return is when one of my children gets sick or one of my children get injured. I remember when uh, Levi, little Levi, when he was like one and a half years old, or maybe not even, had a meningitis scare, and we had to take Levi to the hospital in Wilkes-Barre all day long to get tests taken. I remember when Adelaide got her collar, uh, collarbone broken here at the church building, actually. It wasn't that long ago, and we had to go and get her x-rays and get a little cast for her. When that happens to your children, I don't know what it is, but it recalibrates your mind to the value of your children, the value of your family, and you start to value them more. And in those days, 
I don't mind all the daddy daddies because my perspective has returned. And I wish my perspective was always that way with my children because I love my children. And if they're listening, I love all of you. Um, but sometimes we lose the value of someone important. And that's what we want to look at today is we've lost maybe the value of someone and something very important in our lives. And we're calling it salvation-fueled devotion. I want to know if any of you are like my wife and I during this quarantine period are putting puzzles together. I've noticed that there's been a resurgence for puzzles. Puzzles are now coming back where puzzles are cool. Puzzles are hip. Puzzles are what people are doing now. We, it's funny, we have so much technology and yet people are now going to puzzles going, that's what I want to do with my time. I want to put a puzzle together. So Janine and I, a couple weeks ago, got this thousand-piece puzzle from my mom and dad, and it was a mystery puzzle. It was an Alfred Hitchcock mystery puzzle. And you had to sort of read the story, and then you put the puzzle together, and it sort of helps you figure out the mystery. And it was a thousand pieces. It was a very big puzzle. And the problem with this puzzle is it didn't have any picture. There was no picture on the box. So Janine and I had to put a thousand-piece puzzle together which we were excited to do. We were thankful for the puzzle, but at the same time, it was a very challenging puzzle. And you can see some of the pictures on the screen there from the beginning of how the puzzle started. And we're starting to put this thing together, but we don't have any pictures, so we don't know which way it goes. We're just putting things together, wondering, is that up? Is that down? Is it supposed to go over here or over here? We had no idea. And it took us about two weeks to put a puzzle together uh, that vast and without a picture to look at. And today... I want you to humor me because we're going to put a puzzle together and it's going to be a different sort of puzzle. But we're going to look at two stories side by side. We're going to look at the story of Moses and we're going to look at the story of another deliverer. And we're going to look at those stories side by side because it might surprise you how similar they are. They're so similar. They parallel so well. And what we're going to do is put, a, put some pieces together. And by the end, Lord willing, we will have a completed picture. Okay, so I ask you to humor me and go on this journey with me of putting this puzzle together because you guys know how puzzles work, right? You get a bunch of pieces, you put those pieces together and you come out with a completed picture. And that's what we want to do today is take 10 pieces. You could say 10 parallels. And we're going to put those pieces together side by side, one by one, and put them together. And yes, this is going to take some patience like all puzzles do. You have to be patient you have to be determined, and you have to put the right pieces in the right places. I don't know if you've ever tried that with a puzzle. You want a piece to fit so much that you sort of bang a, pu- a piece in that doesn't really go there. And if you did that enough, you would have a different sort of picture by the end. And we don't want to do that. We want to have the proper picture by the end. So we're going to put a piece, a puzzle together today, 10 pieces into one picture by looking at two stories side by side. So I hope that makes sense. And we are going to look at a lot of scripture passages today. So if you have your Bibles, go on this journey with me. Be patient, be determined, and put these pieces together one by one with us today because we are trying to value someone more than maybe we are up to this point. We want to value someone more. And so let's look at piece number one. Piece number one is evil opposes good. That is a classic story already, right? Most movies or books have that as the foundation of their story. There's a good team, there's a good side, and evil's going to oppose that good side. Well, that's what happens in the first story here as we come to Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, which I'm going to read. Egypt and the Pharaoh are going to oppose God's people, the Israelites. So if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, and listen to the word of God as this story begins. It says, Now, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too vast for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh feels threatened at this moment by the Israelites because the Israelites are reproducing. They're getting big. They're getting vast. They're getting many in Egypt. And he's worried by that because he's worried that they're going to get so big and so mighty that perhaps if they chose to go against the Egyptians, they would be too many to handle. So he does something. He appoints harsh taskmasters. He appoints these men to be taskmasters over the people of Israel and to treat them like slaves to make them do really hard work for really little pay or maybe no pay, treat them like slaves and deal with them very, very harshly so that he can keep them down. He can oppress them. He can suppress them. He can make them small. He can make their morale be low. He can make them maybe even die. And by that, he can kind of solve the problem of the Israelites getting so big. And it reminded me a little bit of the Jews in Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was trying to get their race to be the only race. And so they were knocking down the Jewish people who lived in Germany. And uh, it's a really sad story. But evil is opposing good. That's how our first story starts. And it's a really important foundation for what's going to take place. But we need to look at our second story. Because I told you these two stories parallel so well together. And in our new story, Satan, just like the Pharaoh, is going to oppose God's people. And I want to look at a couple passages with me. Take your Bibles and go to James chapter 1. Verse 13 to 15, James 1, 13 to 15, 13 to 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Let's look at Galatians 5, 16 to 21. Galatians 5. 16 to 21. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Notice the word. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And maybe you can tell Satan, who is called in the scriptures the ruler of this world, is feeling very threatened by a group of people also. And that group of people is the church. The group of people called the church is getting big and vast and mighty. And Satan feels threatened by the church. Maybe they're going to be too big to handle someday. So just like the Pharaoh, he comes up with a solution to deal with us very harshly, to treat us like slaves under the oppression of sin. He's going to hire his minions, his disciples, as taskmasters. And he's going to tempt us. 
He's going to come after us using our own evil desires, and he's going to make our lives very, very difficult by seeking to get us to fall into sin because sin will treat us very harshly, and if we follow sin, it'll lead us to death. And so that's Satan's plan. He's going to use temptation. He's going to use his minions. He's going to use his disciples to oppress us. And Satan appoints his disciples to use temptation as that harsh taskmaster to treat us like slaves, just like the Pharaoh was doing to the people of Israel. So our first piece, our first piece of the puzzle is done. We did the first piece, which is always the most difficult piece, right? Maybe it's not. Maybe the last piece is. But the first piece is difficult too. But we finished the first piece, which is evil opposes good. And that sets the stage for both of our stories today. Because piece number two is this, the birth of a deliverer. Piece number two is the birth of a deliverer. We're going to read a portion of Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where we find out the birth of Moses. The birth of Moses. Follow me in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. A deliverer is born. Moses is his name. And in this story, Moses' mother recognizes that Moses is special. All children are special, right? But Moses was special, very special in the eyes of his mother, and she recognized that. And so she wants to protect him because there's sort of an edict that they're trying to kill all the Hebrew sons once again so they don't become so big and mighty and vast. So Moses is under the threat of death right after he's born, and his mom decides to hide him from the Pharaoh because Moses is special. So she puts him in a basket, puts him in the river, and Moses floats down stream, actually, God-ordained, of course, to the Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses is born into royalty because Moses, excuse me, Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. And Moses becomes her daughter, or her son, excuse me. And what's interesting is that she finds a Hebrew woman to sort of nurse and take care of Moses. And that woman just happens to be Moses' mom, Moses' mother. But Moses is hid, Moses is protected, and Moses is then adopted into royalty. And what's interesting about that is Moses is therefore going to have influence. He's going to have influence over the people because of the royal family that he's born into or adopted into. And so we have the birth of Moses, the birth of a deliverer in story number one. In story number two, I'm guessing you already know who the deliverer is by this point, but it's Jesus. And we have the birth of Jesus that comes to us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18. And we're going to go into chapter 2 as well. So Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles. 
we're going to read the birth of an, excuse me, I said chapter 21. We're going to look at Matthew 1 and look at the birth of the new deliverer. Starting in verse 18, it said, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them went until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and notice this, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I shall call my son. Do you notice something there? A deliverer is born. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And his mother immediately recognizes that Jesus, of course, is special. Because an angel came to her and said, it's going to be born. Your child is going to be born by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we find out that King Herod, just like the Pharaoh, wants to destroy the baby Christ. And so his mother and his father hide him. And they sneak away, interestingly enough, to Egypt to hide out until Herod's threats are gone so they can come back at a due time. And so Jesus is hid in Egypt. And it's interesting that Moses, too, is protected by going to Egypt. But Jesus, just like Moses, is born into royalty, only this time it's not a physical royal family. It's a spiritual royal family because Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And Jesus is going to have much influence over the people. Are you noticing the parallel? Evil opposes good. There's a birth of a deliverer in both stories. Moses and Jesus. We've put the two 
first pieces of the puzzle together. Now we come to piece number three, which is God's special calling of his deliverer. Moses is called to deliver the Israelites from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. I told you a lot of scripture today. So stay patient with us. Exodus 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Moses was keeping his flock, the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is called by God to do something very special. He appears to Moses in a burning bush. We remember that story. And God calls Moses to be his deliverer of his people, Israel, to bring them out of Egypt because they're under affliction. They're under great affliction and slavery by the Pharaoh. And the rest of chapter 3, God promises to Moses that he will be with Moses every step of the way. And he is going to give Moses power, miracles, signs and wonders, power to authenticate that he is from God. And so Moses is called to be God's deliverer of his people, to bring his people out of affliction, out of slavery, and he's going to authenticate that he's with Moses by being with him in a special, special way. So God calls his deliverer, Moses, to do this task. In our New Testament story, Jesus, if you remember, was born, and he's going to be called to deliver God's people from the bondage of, of Satan and sin. Because we... God's people were under slavery as well, only this time from the devil and from sin. And so if you have your Bibles, go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, and listen to what it says. We just read this part, but Matthew 1, 20 says this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of God, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a prophecy about the child Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you notice that God has called Jesus to be his deliverer of his people out of the bondage of Satan and out of the bondage and slavery of sin. And just like he did with Moses, God told Jesus that he was going to be with Jesus every step of the way. And just like Moses, he was going to give Jesus special power to validate that he came from God, that his mission is from God. And now we've done the third piece. God calls a deliverer, which leads perfectly into piece number four. I hope you're staying with me, which is God's validation. God's validation, I told you, he was going to give special power to Moses and to Jesus to validate the fact that they came from God, their mission and their job is from God. And so in our first story, Moses is given powerful signs to authenticate that he is from God. If you have your Bibles, go back to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Exodus 4, verses 1 to 9. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to Moses, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile shall become blood on the dry ground. God gives Moses the proper validation and power that he's not just a man with his own agenda. Moses is not doing this on his own accord. Moses' agenda comes from God. And the way that we know that is because he was given special power, miraculous power from God to validate that he came from the Lord himself. So just like the staff becoming a snake and his hand going into his cloak and becoming like a leper, Moses is able to do things that no man is capable of as a testament that God is with Moses. That Moses is God's deliverer. That Moses was chosen by God for this deliverance of his people. In our second story, it's very similar. Jesus is given powerful signs from God to authenticate that he comes from God. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a couple passages from John. John chapter 10, the Gospel of John. John 10. And we're going to notice starting in verse uh, 37, John 10, 37, Jesus says, If I am not doing the work, the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, 
and I am in the Father. He says, if you don't believe my words, believe what I'm able to do. What I'm able to do validates that I come from God. Go to John chapter 6. We're going to read the the account, the brief account of the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, starting in verse 1. Listen and watch the power that Jesus had from God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to eat a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, brother, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when Jesus, excuse me, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Just like Moses, Jesus is given the proper validation, signs and wonders and miracles from God to validate. He's not a man on his own agenda. This is a man who has come from God. He is the deliverer. He is the savior. He is the Christ. Jesus' mission came from God. And Jesus is able to do things that no man is capable of. Jesus took five loaves and two fish. He fed five to 10,000 people and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus had power from God as a testament that he came from God just like Moses came from God. And you're seeing the parallel, I hope. We just did piece number four. Piece number five, the situation gets worse. The worsening situation. Pharaoh increases his harsh treatment of the Israelites. The situation gets worse. Let's go to Exodus 5, verses 1 to 14. Listen to this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go to a three-day's journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says the Pharaoh, 
I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work and daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday? as in the past. After Moses commands Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so they can meet with God and sacrifice God in the wilderness, Pharaoh increases the workload upon the Israelites by taking away their tools. He required the same amount of work. He took their tools away and said, do just as much work as you did before, making their lives that much harder and that much worse. You see, Pharaoh is flexing his muscles here, saying, Who am I to listen to God? I'm not going to listen to God. I don't know God. I'm going to make your work that much harder and that much more difficult. And I'm going to show the world my power and my power and my royalty. So because Moses commanded him to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh flexes his muscle and the situation gets much worse for the people of Israel. In our New Testament story, this happens as well. Satan increases his harsh treatment of God's people. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, but I want to take you to the book of Acts. And I want you to notice something in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have the apostles, Paul and Peter and James and John and the rest of them, taking the gospel to the nations. Okay, Their mission is to take the gospel, the message of hope, to the nations. And Satan doesn't like this, obviously. Listen to Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Starting. Acts 16, starting in verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their their feet in stocks. Let's go to a passage in Acts chapter 24, excuse me, 23, verses 12 to 15. Acts 23, verses 12 to 15. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath not to taste food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Just like Moses in Moses' day, the situation got worse for the Israelites 
Jesus and his apostles are preaching the gospel in Acts to the nations because the gospel can set men free from their sin and their slavery. But the devil ramps up his attacks on the apostles and God's ministers so that he might silence the message of hope. Satan begins to flex his muscles. And he says, I don't like this. I don't like that the gospel is going out. I'm going to make their situation that much worse. I'm going to drag them through the streets. I'm going to beat them with rods. I'm going to put them in prison. I'm going to have them stoned. They're going to be shipwrecked. They're going to be bitten by snakes. They're going to go hungry. And I'm going to make the situation that much worse on the people of God. So piece number five is the situation gets much worse. And thankfully, that's not the end of the story because piece number six is this. God's covenant. God's covenant. God promises full and final deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh's grasp. Okay, God is going to make a covenant with his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that they will be delivered. Take your Bibles and go to Exodus 6, 1-9. Exodus 6, 1-9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty by the name of the Lord. I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give you, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their burden and their broken and harsh spirit. God makes a covenant of promise with Moses and the people of Israel that in spite of Pharaoh's best attempts to oppress them and to keep them as slaves, God is going to deliver them. He promises, I'm going to deliver you people. Just trust my process. Trust my timing. I am now going to flex my muscles. I will deliver my people because I love you. And I keep my covenant. And I cannot break my promises. And God told us that in the New Testament as well. That he's going to give us full and final deliverance from the power of Satan's grasp. Colossians 1 13 to 14. Notice the language. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. A passage we looked at just a little while ago. He says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
one more. 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God makes a covenant with his people in the New Testament and says, in spite of Satan's best attempts to keep you down, to keep you in slavery, to keep you oppressed, I will deliver my people. I will bring you out of sin. I will set your feet on dry ground. I will bring you into the land of promise. I will bring you to heaven. It is my covenant. It is my promise. I cannot break my promise and my covenant. So God establishes his covenant with the Israelites and God establishes his covenant with the church. And we've done the sixth piece. Let's recap a little bit before we move on. Piece number one is evil opposes good. Piece number two is there's a birth of a deliverer. Piece number three is God's special calling of that deliverer. Piece number four is God's validation of that deliverer. Piece number five is the situation gets much worse. Piece number six is God's covenant. We've done the first six pieces. Now we come to piece number seven. Evil refuses to comply. Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. We all remember the story. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God of God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart as though I multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out of the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded him. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In spite of God's power to obviously be upon Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh refuses to loosen his grip on the Israelites. Pharaoh is not going away without a fight. He's going to force God to flex his muscles because he's not going to give in to the plan of God. Does that sound familiar? Satan, in our New Testament story, also refuses to let God's people go. Ephesians 6, we just studied through Ephesians. If you remember, Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. So let's just read a couple passages, a couple verses from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Is Satan going to let the people go? No, he's not. God is going to have to rescue them. Pharaoh was not going to let the people go. God was going to have to rescue them. And God is going to rescue them. We've done seven pieces. We come to piece number eight. The revealing of God's might. God is going to flex his muscles in both of these stories to prove that he's going to keep his covenant. God brings ten plagues upon Egypt. And we're just going to read a portion of the first plague and then recap the other nine plagues. But go to Exodus chapter 7, back where we were, and look at verses 14 to 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff and turn, that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the water stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. To force Pharaoh's hand, God is going to bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians, not the Israelites. The Israelites are going to be kept in safety there in Goshen. But God is going to bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians to force Pharaoh's hand into letting his people go. And we mentioned the blood. That was just number one. Plague number one is God turns all the water in Egypt into blood. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all the water source in the entire Luzerne, Lackawanna County being blood? That was just the first plague. The first plague was that he turned all the water into blood. The second plague, maybe you remember these, is frogs. God sent thousands and millions of frogs all over the land. It said it was in their beds. It was in their ovens. They couldn't walk without crushing these frogs. They were everywhere. God sent frogs over the entire land of Egypt as a plague. And yet Pharaoh hardens his heart once again. God sends gnats. Thousands, millions, trillions of gnats all over the place. You ever been around gnats? 
My children can't even take when one gnat is around. If one gnat is around, my children can't take it. I cannot imagine the amount of gnats that were around, that were flying in your face and in your eyes, in your home. But that was the third plague. God sent gnats. Right after that, he sent flies. Flies everywhere, in your home, in your soup, all over the place. You couldn't go anywhere where there weren't any flies. Flies and gnats, and yet Pharaoh hardens his heart once again. The next plague is that God kills all their livestock. Every single one of them drops dead on the same day. All their livestock die. Can you imagine the hunger? Can you imagine what that plague must have done to the people of Egypt? And yet, Pharaoh hardens his heart. God sends boils, boils to cover the skins of all the Egyptians. From head to toe, they were covered in boils like a leper. Painful, really bad boils all over the people. And yet Pharaoh hardens his heart and won't let the people go. God then sends hail. Hail so big it could crush a man just with one hit. Hail and fire was raining from the sky. Crushing the people, killing anybody that was caught in it. God is now flexing his muscles, isn't he? And yet Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. I mean, can you imagine these plagues? We think social distancing is hard. Imagine these plagues one after another. After hail came locusts. God sent millions of locusts all over the land. I don't know if you've ever been around locusts, but they're really big, loud insects that eat everything. And they just devour whatever plants and, and, plant, plants and flowers and trees, whatever they can find, they just eat everything. It seems sent millions of locusts all over the land, and yet Pharaoh hardens his heart. And won't let the people go. The ninth plague is darkness. God brings darkness over the entire land. So there's not one light to be found. Except where the Israelites are living. Darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. And still Pharaoh hardens his heart. The tenth plague is the worst plague. And it's the death of the firstborn. God promised that he was going to kill all the firstborn of every family living in Egypt, unless Pharaoh gave up the people of Israel. God is now showing that he is in charge. God, When God flexes his muscles, it is nothing compared to when Pharaoh and Satan flexes their muscles. When God flexes his muscles, things happen. And he brings ten plagues upon Egypt in order to force their hand into letting the people go out of Egypt. And in our New Testament story, instead of bringing ten plagues upon Satan, I want you to notice that he's going to reserve his plagues for Satan for a future time. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Revelation 20, 7 to 10. Listen to this passage. Revelation 20, 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them then was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
In the Old Testament, God brought his plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. In the New Testament, God flexes his muscle by promising to Satan that one day he is going to be cast into the lake of fire where he will never, ever get out. He will never, ever stop being tormented. God will bring all the plagues upon Satan and then some that came upon Egypt. And God is forcing Satan, he's forcing Pharaoh to give up his people because God is mighty, God's plan will come to fruition, God is going to keep his covenant. Guys, we've completed eight pieces of the puzzle and I thank you for being patient because we come to the ninth piece and this is God's deliverance. The ninth piece of the puzzle is God's deliverance, the Passover of the Israelites. I want to read a portion from Exodus chapter 12, 1 to 14. Exodus 12, 1 to 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not let any of the raw or boiled, excuse me, do not eat, eat any of the raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, you with your fastened belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Bump down to verse 28 of Exodus chapter 12. It says, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. God delivers his people just as he said he would. He gives his people precise instructions how to avoid his most vicious plague against Egypt. He said, I want you to take a spotless lamb, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to put it on your doorposts and your lintel. 
And when I see that blood, I will pass over you, over your household. I will not kill your firstborn. I will only kill the firstborn of those who do not have the blood on their doorposts and lintels. And God delivers all of his people. And they're able to not only avoid God's plague, but as we're going to be able to see, he's going to be able to, be, to leave Egypt and the slavery because of the viciousness of God's tenth plague. Well, in our New Testament story, the Passover of the Christians takes place as well. God is going to deliver us as well from the grip of Satan and sin once and for all. Hebrews 9, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 9, starting in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.7 Thanks for joining me on this journey. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. And one more. First, 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God's kept his covenant with his New Testament people, just like he did with the Israelites. He gives us precise instructions how to avoid his most vicious plague and punishment that comes in hell. By putting the blood of the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, not on the doorpost this time, but on our souls, upon our hearts. Take the spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His blood, by faith, sprinkle that blood on your souls and in your hearts, and God's wrath will pass over you. It will not come to you. It will not come to your household. Those who have faith in Jesus will be passed over just like God passed over the Israelites and didn't let the firstborn die in their, in their families, in their households. So God passes over the Christians, just like he passed over the Israelites. And God delivers them from Egypt, and he delivers us from the bondage of sin and the bondage of Satan. Now, the first nine pieces have been completed. We have ten pieces, okay? The first nine pieces have been put in place, and we're getting close to our final picture. We have one piece to go before the picture is completed, okay? And if you've done puzzles before, you know the last piece of the puzzle is sometimes the most joyous, but also the most difficult to get to. Well, the tenth piece of the puzzle for the Israelites, what was the point? What was the last piece of the puzzle for the Israelites? You see, Pharaoh opposed them, but God sent them a deliverer. God gave that deliverer power from God, and even though Pharaoh refused to let them go, God kept his promise to deliver them from Egypt and from Pharaoh's grasp. He passed over their households by his mercy. He did not kill their firstborn because they obeyed him and put the blood of the lamb upon their doorposts and upon their lintels. 
And here's the point. Here's the last piece for the Israelites. To radically trust and radically stay devoted to the Lord through obedience for all that he had done for them. Okay? That was supposed to be the last piece of the puzzle for the Israelites. Trust and devotion. For all that the Lord has done, for all that the Lord has brought them through, trust and devotion. But here's a sad part of the first story, okay? What did the final picture actually look like for the Israelites once the puzzle was completed? What did the picture look like? Sadly, the picture looked like abandonment. The picture looked like idolatry. The people of Israel got into the wilderness and they actually fashioned for themselves a false god by their own jewelry into a golden calf and they bowed down to the golden calf and gave that calf, that god, their glory instead of the god who had brought them through Egypt out of slavery, out of Pharaoh's grasp. For all the Lord did, that's their completed picture. Isn't that sad? Isn't that a sad end of the story for the Israelites? And sadly, we can't change history. It is what it is. But I told you, these are two stories side by side. And although we can't change the old story, we can change the 10th piece of the puzzle for our story, okay? Because we have a 10th piece of the puzzle as well that we got to place in. The point for the Israelites should have been trust and devotion, but it turned into idolatry and abandonment. And they had Moses as their deliverer. They had Moses as their deliverer. And we have Jesus as our deliverer. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without the mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now here's the point. The Israelites had Moses as their deliverer. Okay, Moses brought them through all the things that God promised they would have. Okay, Moses led the way. Moses was their deliverer. They got into the wilderness and they abused the mercy and grace that God gave them. And now he says in Hebrews chapter 10, they had Moses and you have the Son of God as your deliverer. Be careful how you treat the mercy and grace that you have received, the salvation that you have received. You see, for some reason, trusting in the Lord and staying faithful to the Lord became very difficult for the Israelites. As Pastor Mel's going to speak to us on next week, God brings them through the Red Sea. They are pinned down between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army because Pharaoh comes after the people of Israel. And they're pinned, and they're trapped, and they have nowhere to go. And God had already brought them through Egypt, already brought them through the ten plagues, and now they're trapped. And what does God do? He separates the Red Sea and lets them walk through on dry ground. But then they forget God, and they abandon God, and they worship idols. That's the tenth piece. That's the completed picture of their story. And look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 regarding what they did and regarding the warning given to us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 
God warns us of a potential 10th parallel or a potential similar 10th piece that we have with the Israelites. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The final piece for the puzzle, the final picture for the Israelites was idolatry, was abandonment of the Lord. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, let the parallels stop here. Let the nine pieces be similar and let the tenth be vastly different because they forgot their Lord. They abandoned their Lord. They set up idols and bowed down to the idols and did not love the Lord. And he says, now let the stories be different. Let their picture, let their final picture serve as a warning to you to not treat your God that way, but to radically trust in and to stay devoted to the Lord who has delivered you from the bondage of Satan and the bondage of sin. See, we know what the Israelites' finished picture looked like. And now it's our turn, okay? Now it's our turn to finish our puzzle. And the question is this, how are we going to finish it? What is that last picture going to look like? See, the last piece of the puzzle is up to us. We had the same things that they did. We had the same deliverance. We had the same protection. We had the same covenant. We had the same God. We had the same love, grace, mercy, and salvation. And they neglected the Lord. Will the Lord finally get from us what he so richly deserves? Will we break from the story, from the parallel of the Israelites? And will we, unlike the Israelites, remember what he's done, remember what he's brought us through, and will we place radical trust in and give devotion to our Lord? And this is the point. For our picture to look different than their picture. God's great salvation of us should be the fuel for our trust and our devotion to the Lord because our Lord is worthy, is he not? I know that's a long journey. I thank you for going on it with me. Ten pieces for one picture. You saw what the picture was for the Israelites. The tenth piece of the puzzle is up to us. Will we go the same way of the Israelites? Will we abandon our Lord? Will we forget our Lord? Maybe this is a perfect example during this pandemic for us to put this into practice and go, Lord, you've brought me through six troubles already. You will not abandon me in the seventh. I will trust you. I will stay devoted to you. You deserve a better picture from us than you got from your people in the Old Testament. And perhaps if we listen to and obey the story that we just taught, perhaps our story will look something like this at the end. Perhaps our picture will look like the greatest commandment God ever gave man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Don't you want that to look like our finished picture, unlike the picture of the Israelites? Is this going to be how your final picture looks after all the pieces are put together? I hope and pray that it is. Thank you for going on this journey. I hope it's been helpful for you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for these two stories side by side. I know it's been long. I know it was a journey. I think it's important, Father, for us to know that there's a tenth piece of the puzzle for each of us to place in and to finish this picture. And you've left the tenth piece up to us. You did the first nine for us and you said, here you go. The picture's almost completed. All I need you to do is to trust in and obey and stay devoted to me. 
and you're leaving that piece up to us? Will we finish the picture and will the picture look like you desire it to look? Or will we forsake you like the Israelites and go the way they did and have our story be utterly devastating? Father, I pray for our church. I know this is a difficult time. I know we're all wondering when we can get back and will the scary come to us in our household? But Father, you have proven yourself time and time again in our lives. Help us to remember that you keep your promises, that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the Israelites, and you are worthy of our trust. You did not even spare your son when it meant our deliverance. Help us to remember that. Help us to trust in you, to obey you, to stay devoted to you, and let our last picture be one that brings you a tremendous amount of glory because you are worthy of it. We thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name.